Good morning, and thank you, Julia. And let us pray for a moment. Lord, speak to us through me, through your word, by your spirit this morning. Amen. So, as, um, as, as Julia mentioned, we're in a series on becoming like Jesus. It's the fourth talk in that series. Uh, it's part of our overall theme of spiritual formation, in which we're looking at three commands. Uh, firstly, be with Jesus, then become like Jesus, and then do what Jesus does. And so this series is on becoming like Jesus. Our focus particularly is on grace, because what sets Jesus apart, indeed what sets Christianity apart from most other ways of life, is this focus on grace. And in the first talk, three weeks ago, Richard defined grace as the undeserved, unmerited, unconditional love of God. If we're to become like Jesus, we will have to learn to love others with this same undeserved, unconditional love. And so in the second and third talks, Dave and then Jack looked at two ways in which grace works between people. Forgiving others when they have wronged us and seeking reconciliation when we have wronged someone else. Today, we change tack slightly. We're going to look at perseverance, as it says on, on the screen. Um, there's always a danger. Uh, perseverance is the art of keeping on going. And there's always a danger listening to a sermon on perseverance that the preacher will do just that. Keep on going, yes. Um, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians... Notice, notice I'm not promising not to do that. <laughs> Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 that love perseveres. And we see, if we think about it, that the grace we're talking about is nothing if it doesn't keep on going, if it doesn't persevere. What is forgiveness if we don't keep on forgiving? What is reconciliation if we don't keep on being reconciled? How many times, asks Peter, must I forgive my brother, thinking that seven would be plenty? And Jesus replied, 70 times seven. Don't stop. Keep on forgiving. So, if you've been in, in church, if you've been following Jesus for a while, you will not be surprised, or you will know, uh, that many New Testament authors call us to perseverance. They use different figures of speech. Um, they talk about applying a soldier's discipline, or that of an athlete running a race, or simply in not giving up meeting together. So I could have chosen many passages. I'm going to choose one from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is speaking. Uh, this is in Matthew's Gospel. Um, this passage, I think we looked at it uh, last week or the week before, but uh, it, uh, it contains the, the call to love your enemy, which is a wonderful definition of grace in practice. But our focus is going to be on this last verse. So this is Matthew, verse 48. So Matthew 5, starting at 43, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, 
as God is perfect. Jesus couldn't have given us a stronger call to perseverance than that, to perseverance in grace and love. I'm going to start this talk with a couple of examples, showing my age slightly. These are examples from the last century, the 20th century, examples of Christians who showed great perseverance in grace, particularly in the grace of forgiveness. Uh, After that, I'm going to look at how we can learn perseverance, and I'm going to conclude with a call to prayer, because my main point today will be that the key to perseverance in grace is perseverance in prayer. Now this, not come out particularly well, but this is a picture of the theologian Miroslav Volf. He wrote a book about grace, about giving and forgiving, called Free of Charge. But the story is actually about his parents, um, whose pictures are not sca- uh, scattered all over the internet, um, so I couldn't pr- uh, bring them. He writes of his upbringing in Croatia and in Serbia, which at the time were both part of Yugoslavia. And he writes of his parents, who were Pentecostal Christians. To put that in context, that, is, that was a tiny minority in a place where the dominant religions were not even Protestant, they were Catholicism and Serbian Orthodox. Now, Miroslav had an elder brother, Daniel. And when Daniel was five and Miroslav was one, Daniel slipped out of his nanny's care and went to spend time with his, went to play with some soldiers who he'd made friends with. There's a local small military base near where they lived. Uh, one of the soldiers put him on a bread wagon. And as they were passing, as the bread wagon was passing through a narrow gate on a bumpy road, Daniel leaned sideways. His head got stuck between the doorpost and the wagon. The horses kept going, and he died on the way to hospital. It was a tragic accident, but both the nanny, who was watching him, and the soldier, who put him on the cart and should have watched him on the cart, they're both at least partly responsible. Now, Daniel's parents forgave both. In unmeasurable pain, they forgave both. The nanny continued to work for the family. She was adored by Miroslav until her death at the age of 91. And according to Wikipedia, was, along with his parents, a major spiritual influence on him, bringing him to this understanding of grace and love in practice, which was the heart of his theology. It was not until 47 years after the accident that he learned about his nanny's role in it. His parents had never even hinted at blaming her for the loss that caused both of them immeasurable pain. On the other hand, their forgiveness of the soldier became Miroslav's first lesson in forgiveness. He grew up with that that story, because not only did they refuse to press charges in court, so the soldier, he did lose his job, but he went otherwise unpunished, but Miroslav's father visited him twice, in one case travelling two days to do so, because he was so concerned for the soldier and he wanted to talk to him of God's love and of their forgiveness for him. Now, they would say, Miroslav says, they forgave for a really simple reason. God forgave them, so they forgave the soldier. But the forgiveness itself was difficult, excruciatingly painful for both of them, but I'll focus on Daniel's father. He had reason enough to hate soldiers, because ten years previously he had been in a communist concentration camp, cruelly mistreated, Uh, This was shortly after the Second World War. And it made no sense that he was in that camp because he had had been a sympathizer with the socialist or communist revolution. He'd actually risked his life to join the revolutionaries against the the old Croatian regime. But the the crime, in inverted commas, that got him into the concentration camp, got him almost tricked into it, was that he'd been conscripted into the regular Croatian army, against which the communists were uprising, um, 
near the end of the Second World War, of course, that army had been serving the occupying Nazi regime. Miroslav hadn't even fought for the Nazis. He had baked bread for a non-combatant part of the, of the Croatian army. And yet the revolutionaries didn't listen. They didn't even give him a chance to put his side of the story. They didn't even give him a chance to say that he sympathized with them. They put him in a concentration camp. They tortured him almost to death as if he was the worst enemy. As he puts it, as Miroslav puts it, sorry, his father received indiscriminate brutality directed against the innocent, and yet he gave forgiveness, born out of compassion for the guilty. Now, my second example may be more familiar to at least some of you, and with, um, I hope Dave forgive, will forgive me a bit for telling a story about his homeland. Probably feels closer to home for you, Dave, than to me. Um, and I've taken this from Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, which I commend. Um, so in 1987, on Remembrance Sunday, an IRA bomb went off in the small town of Enniskillen, near Belfast, west of Belfast. Eleven people died, 64 were injured. One of the wounded was Gordon Wilson in the photograph with his wife, a devout Methodist, and he held the hand of his dying 20-year-old daughter Marie as both lay crushed under the rubble. Daddy, I love you very much, were the last words she spoke. And as he recovered, speaking from his hospital bed, Gordon Wilson said, I have lost my daughter, but I bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring Marie Wilson back to life. I shall pray tonight and every night that God will forgive them. And after his release from hospital, he led what Yancey describes as a crusade for reconciliation. Extremists who had planned to avenge the bombing decided against it because of the, of the publicity surrounding Wilson. Wilson wrote a book, spoke out against violence, and constantly repeated the refrain, love is the bottom line. He met with the IRA, he personally forgave them, he asked them to lay down their arms. I know you've lost loved ones just like me, he told them. Surely enough is enough. Enough blood has been spilled. And these are extreme examples, and please God, we will not all be called to these levels of grace, though I realize that having to live with the pain of the loss of a child is not as uncommon as we would like it to be. But even if we're not called to this level, not called to forgive in the public eye as Gordon Wilson did, it's tough stuff, it's hard to do. And I found as I researched this that the Bible is, and the New Testament is very clear on the need for perseverance, not quite so obviously helpful on how to learn perseverance. There's a couple of texts from Paul and from James which tell us that perseverance comes out of tough times, trials and suffering. And that makes sense. You can see that in the stories that I've told. But whilst trials and suffering were, I guess, normal for that New Testament church, they're less normal for us. And it's so not, not quite so obvious for us how to go about developing this perseverance in grace. Now, before we turn to the Christian answer, which I believe is prayer, I want to talk about the answer, answer given by the science of psychology, uh, at least to a related question, which is, how can I get better at perseverance in general? How can I develop stickability? Most of us, many of us, of us know what it's like to try to change a habit or to persevere at something new and to struggle and then and find it hard going and eventually probably to founder and to give up. 
whether that's controlling our, learning to control our temper or keeping to a diet or exercise regime, maybe a revision schedule, or just trying to develop the habit of not leaving tasks to the last minute. You've got your own examples, I'm sure. If that's you, can I ask you to think about what, when you try to, do some, try to persevere at something and mess up, what do you do? What is your reaction? Because a common reaction is to be super critical of ourselves, to beat ourselves up when we fail. It's natural to be cross, and who better to be cross with than ourselves? We may even think that making ourselves suffer is the right way to do better next time. Paul talks about suffering producing perseverance, but this is not the right sort of suffering. Because the problem is that beating ourselves up doesn't work. That sort of self-imposed pressure is not a good motivator, so the psychologists say, so the studies show. It just piles on stress and guilt and makes us feel unhappy. Instead of progress towards our goal, it leads more likely to a downward spiral of failure and despair. Um, So this is the (coughs) the better way. Psychologists tell us that we need to do things the other way around. We're motivated much more by praise than we are by criticism. The recognized way now to train both children and animals is to catch them doing the right thing and reward them, praise them. What may surprise you is that also works for us. We can actually do this for ourselves. We can praise ourselves. I can talk to myself, say, well done, Graham. We can praise ourselves for achieving a goal. What's remarkable is that that actually achieves a similar effect to when someone else praises us. It becomes a motivation for going on. And if that sounds weird, think about it like this. We can make ourselves feel bad after a failure, so why shouldn't we be able to make ourselves feel good after a success? We can. Amazingly, and perhaps surprisingly, it, does work, it works as a motivation in the same way that praise from another does. And so when we know that, the way to success is clear. We set ourselves a series of small, achievable goals. We praise ourselves as we achieve each one, and thus motivating ourselves to keep on going. But the thing is, as Christians, I think we learn not to do this because I think that we think that praising ourselves is a form of pride and that the, hu- the humble thing to do is to criticize ourselves. Does that resonate? Wrong. It's not pride to give ourselves fair praise for an achievement. It would be pride to, bra- to brag about it in front of others. That would be pride. But to give fair praise to ourselves when no one else is looking, is not pride. And incidentally, it works the other way too. Tearing strips off yourself for making a mistake is not humility. It's just destructive. So the way to learn perseverance at practically anything is this. Set yourself small goals. There's an element of planning involved. Baby steps. And as you achieve them, praise yourself. Repeat. As it becomes a habit, make the goals more stretching. Keep on doing that easy. Actually, it's not easy. It takes discipline and effort. But it is a clear and achievable strategy. So that's what the science says, whether you're a Christian or not. The question is, can we apply it to the Christian life? Yes, we can. But also, no, we can't. Because what Jesus called being perfect and what theologians call sanctification, becoming holy, becoming more like Jesus, is not something we can do on our own. I can learn to diet. I can learn an exercise regime in my own strength. I cannot become holy 
in my own strength. We need the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit of God. And so we need to pray. And my point today will be put these two things together. Learn to pray using small steps and put the two together and we will move towards Christian perseverance. Christian perseverance starts with prayer. As I said, my advice is to try first to persevere with prayer and the outward forms of grace will then come more easily. So what can I say to make the point, which you might call obvious, I think it might be obvious, that prayer is absolutely central to the Christian life and to Christian perseverance. Unless you're new to church, you know that is true. It's, you know it's true in your head, but has it made the journey to, you, to our hearts? Has it changed your life or mine? Have, and this is where I look at my own life, and I know each of you have, will have a different prayer life, and you may be far more uh, diligent in prayer than I am. Has it, have, I, have we realized just how much more the Christians in the New Testament prayed than I think most of us do? Um, Sorry, it's a little bit small. Don't worry if you can't read it. I've put on there a few of the examples of the 150 plus times that prayer is mentioned in the New Testament. I just want to try and convey to you just how big a thing it is. Jesus prayed throughout his ministry, often withdrawing to pray on his own. He taught his followers to pray and to keep on praying. Paul, Paul prayed continually, and several times he writes that. He tells his readers to pray several times in his letters. And when he wrote that suffering produces perseverance, I think he was taking it for granted that the person suffering was praying. And his example of that is him and Silas in prison in Acts 16, where they prayed and sang sang hymns. The other line I mentioned was by James, who wrote the testing of your faith produces perseverance. But he too, and we don't don't know as much about him, um, I couldn't find an example of him praying because he doesn't appear in Scripture as much, but he too passionately taught his readers to pray. In James 5, one of the quotes from there is at the bottom of the screen. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. As I said, I would hazard a guess that the biggest single difference between New Testament churches and churches today is that we don't pray as much, as often, or as persistently as they did. There's also plenty of examples in the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah, in particular, known as for spending a lot of time with God in prayer. But I want maybe to look, at, to look at a maybe surprising example of prayer, that of Job. Two reasons. Firstly, Job is another example of the link between prayer, suffering, and perseverance. But also because I want to look at how Job prayed, because it's not like what we think of as good prayer. Um, that, I will read this in a moment. But uh, Job suffered a great deal. But the story of Job... It's not just about suffering, it's about how Job persevered through suffering. He didn't display amazing acts of grace. He didn't find it easy to give or forgive or reconcile. He actually got pretty fed up with his friends, although to be fair, they weren't exactly being helpful. The way he demonstrated grace was simply in not cursing God. He maintained his belief, his faith in the goodness of God, in spite of all evidence to the contrary. And if you read Job you find that he did it through prayer, at least sort of prayer. It was not conventional prayer. He didn't, seem, he didn't spend his time praying for the Spirit to help him through. He ranted and he railed and he wrestled and at God and about God. He's talking to himself, he's talking to his friends, he's talking to God. He's complaining a heck of a lot of the time. Uh, in Job, let's look at an example. Job 23, he's showing his frustration that God is silent and he can't find God. Um, 
So I'm going to read that chapter. Um, Then Job replied, Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand, God's hand, is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me with great power? No, he would not press charges against me. This turns out to be totally wrong. God has a, very, has a lot to say in great power to Job. <laughs> and Job ends up repenting. Um, there the upright can, uh, can establish their innocence before him. Job thinks he's innocent. <coughs> um, uh, and there I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. He knows the way that I take. When he's tested me, I'll come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. Job's beginning to make a bit more sense now. He carries out his decree against me, and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. You see prayer changing Job as he goes through this. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. He gets a lot of things wrong in this prayer, but the important thing is that he's praying it. It's not even a prayer so much as a sort of wrestle about God. Um, He wrestles and he wrestles and he wrestles in prayer and frustration for page after page after page. But it is perseverance to keep the dialogue with God going which sees him through and enables him to persevere through his whole trial. So my point for today is this. Grace is forged in the furnace of prayer. Now, I came up with that, but I quite like it. (laughs) I'd like to quote other people. I'm quoting myself here. Um, Grace is forged in the furnace of prayer. Persevere in prayer, and we will find ourselves persevering in grace. It's in wrestling in prayer over the tough issues as Job did, that we can learn to see the way of grace, see through every challenge there is a grace-filled path to navigate through it, to get through it, and that, the narrow path, if you like. And prayer will help us see that. God will help us see that as we pray. And he will also, as we pray, help us find, give us the strength of character and the inner resolve to follow that grace-filled path, whether it is forgiving or for, forgiving or reconciling or something else. He will find the way through it if we pray or when we pray. Then Job, I've said I use Job as an example because I want to open our minds that prayer isn't always like what we think it is. There are lots of ways to pray. And our prayers don't have to be good, in inverted commas. They don't have to be theologically right to be effective in the way I'm talking about today. So the challenge to you and to me is to develop the habit of praying more, to learn to persevere in prayer. There are, as I keep saying, there are lots of ways to pray, and of course lots of things to pray about. We can pray in silence and solitude, as we learned a few weeks ago. We can pray with others, and we can also pray as we do other things. Prayer can become part of our life, not a bit we separate out from our life. And when we pray, there are lots of things we can do. We can praise God. We can, of course, intercede for others. We can wrestle, as Job did, with our own problems. Or we can simply spend time with God in silence, listening, reflecting, meditating. Sometimes we need to lament in prayer. There are many biblical authors who do that, who uh, who, um, lead us in lament. And of course we can pray as we read the Bible. 
So I want, as I close, to bring my two points together. We can apply the habit-forming lesson to our prayer lives. So how does that go? Don't set an impossible target. So don't walk out from here and say, I'm going to get up an hour earlier to pray every day. Because if you're anything like me, that's not, you might do that a day, and then it's not going to happen. I'd fall asleep. Um, and certainly, if you don't beat ourselves up when we fail, set an easy target, five minutes more prayer, at, the, at, a, conven- at a time for the day when it's going to work for you. We're not trying to impress anybody here. We're trying to get better at prayer. Do that every day for a week. Praise yourself when you get it right, when you achieve your goal. And as you get comfortable doing that, set the target a little higher, a little harder, a little higher. Change our prayer habits. Let's change our prayer habits gradually over time in a planned way, praising ourselves for each small success. And we'll be amazed what we, with God, can do. And as we do that, I believe God will use our prayer to lead us into grace. We will find ourselves persevering in grace beyond what we thought we could whether that's the grace of, grace of forgiving or reconciling or giving or whatever form of grace God shows us is appropriate to our situation. Because grace is what we are here for. Grace is what makes Christ different. Grace is or should be what makes Christians, what makes church different. So this message, I believe, is for all of us. But I think... There may be some here to whom it specially resonates. As we move into a time of of prayer and and response, maybe some here, some on the stream, who know that God is speaking specially to you today to to challenge you to take a step forward in your prayer life. God wants you to spend more time with him so he can equip you better for works of grace in your lives, in our lives. And if that's you... If God is speaking to you now, and you're able, I'd encourage you to stand now, and I'm going to pray over you as we keep our eyes closed. Lord, it takes a lot to have the courage to stand before you and admit that we can do more in following you. And I pray for each of those standing, and all of us here today, that you will help us on this journey, journey into greater prayer, greater relationship with you, greater grace. Lord, give us the strength and the tools and the encouragement, the support of friends and fellow believers, Lord, as we go on this journey. And I pray by you that your spirit would fall on each of those standing here. By your spirit, Lord, draw us closer to yourself. Amen.